The contents at lab reports are meant for educational purposes only and not to be misconstrued as medical diagnosis or treatment advice. Today on The Lab Report, we're going to talk to Dr. Bill Rawls. We're going to talk about herbs and how to get to your cellular wellness solution. And he's a deep thinker, people. Get your splode brain ready. Mm. The world of medicine can be challenging. Clinicians and patients are always looking for more options, more effective treatments, and in the end, more answers. Functional and integrative medicine focuses on addressing root causes of disease. Here at Genova Diagnostics, we've watched this field evolve and grow for over 35 years. We've not only adapted, we've led. Join us as we talk about functional medicine, laboratory testing, and optimizing health. Welcome to the Lab Report. You use the term splode brain a lot, which you and I both know what that means. Do you think other people get it? Uh, it's been a while since we've talked about it, huh? I it's uh, being in the state of your brain exploding. <laughs> Hello! Hi, Michael Chapman. How are you today? I'm doing great, Patty Devers. How are you? I'm crushing it. Things are going excellently here. Mm. What is the it in the crushing it? What is, what is, what is it? Everything. All of all World domination. Okay. Well, to all of you out there, uh, thanks for crushing your way over to this podcast called The Lab Report. It's where we talk about things like functional medicine, specialty lab testing, integrative therapeutics, uh, and, and just all the stuff. Because today we're talking about botanical medicine, cellular wellness. I mean, look at how look look at the ground we cover here. Right. And if you're brand new and you just stumbled upon this show and you're hearing it for the first time, you have picked a good day because we're going to cover some really interesting stuff. And if you're returning sure and have. you've been coming back, thank you so much for your support. Maybe perhaps hit the subscribe slash no, follow, you should crush it. like, crush the button. Yeah. yeah. And then maybe <laughs> crush leave your, us key, a, your keyboard. Leave us a rate or review. All that good stuff. It really helps the metrics for our show and gets it out to the masses in a better way, which is awesome. And here's what else. What? If you have additional feedback and you, you want to share something, maybe you have a question, uh, maybe you have a clinical insight, maybe you know somebody who knows somebody that mm-hmm. wants to chat with us sometime, all of that all that stuff, you can send a f- uh, podcast at gex.net. That's our email address. Yeah, and if you're a consumer and you're interested in trying out some of Genova's products. And who isn't a consumer? That's a fair point. We both consume a lot of things. I, yeah. Yeah. Is there someone? Who's not I, a consumer? Hmm. Gandhi? Um, Gandhi is dead and therefore not a consumer. So if you're so out there, it works. Well, either way, if you're not Gandhi and you're a consumer out there, and you're interested in accessing some of Genova's products yourself and trying them out, you can head over to Genova Connect, which is connect.gdx.net. There you can get tests yourself, and there's a tool where we can connect you with a Genova client somewhere in your area to help guide your healthcare. That's totally right. There's there's GI testing, there's nutrient testing, there's hormone testing, there's mm-hmm. adrenal testing. All of that is available, and it's available at a 20% off discount if you use the promo code THELABREPORT20. That's awesome. Go ahead and crush that promo code right into your <laughs> browser window. Crush it. Uh, so today we are talking to Dr. Bill Rawls, and I can't wait. Um, we don't do a lot of botanical medicine, and I will say we don't do enough botanical agree. medicine. I agree. And, you know, we've talked about it all these years because in the contrast between me being a DO and you being a naturopath and having all that knowledge, I'm just so thirsty for it. I love it so much. And in my thirst to know more, mm. I read Dr. Rawls' book called The Cellular Wellness Crushed Solution it. and I did crush it and I was fascinated and I said Michael we have got to talk to this guy you two are two peas in a pod it's going to be fascinating <laughs> look out that's all <laughs> I got to say and with that I think we should uh, get right to it we should call Dr. Rolf 
So, Patty. I know, Michael. Today we I know. Have Dr. Bill mm -hmm. Rawls. Let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Rawls. So Dr. Rawls graduated from Bowman Gray School of Medicine at Wake Forest University in 1985. He was board certified in obstetrics and gynecology with a license to practice in North Carolina. Dr. Rawls dedicated his life to OB-GYN medicine for decades when a health crisis in his early 40s brought him face to face with the limitations of modern medicine. He, his ensuing journey for answers led him to holistic and herbal therapies, which have inspired him to share his revelations on wellness with the world. Dr. Rawls has written extensively on health topics, including Lyme disease, fibromyalgia, and chronic immune dysfunction. He's the author of Suffered Long Enough and Unlocking Lyme, and has contributed to various health sites. His latest book, The Cellular Wellness Solution, offers a fresh take on the critical role our cells play in unlocking wellness and supporting health. Aside from his writing, Dr. Rawls serves as medical director for Vital Plan, an herbal supplement and wellness company he co-founded with his daughter, Brayden. And, and with, with that, that, welcome to the show, Dr. Rawls. All right. Thank you. Pleasure <laughs> to be here. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting story uh, in reading it. Um, as someone who was conventionally trained, for you, also conventionally trained, to end up in herbalism. Mm -hmm. So tell us about that health journey <laughs> that brought you to this passion. I mean, that's a pretty big leap. Tell us about <laughs> how you got there. Yeah. You know, none of that was planned. You know, <laughs> I planned to go to medical school, have a career, do that, and eventually retire and, you know, kind of an ordinary life. And, um, that's how and 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 it's end up being so unordinary in uh -huh. so many ways yeah in a very positive way i wouldn't trade it for anything but um i yeah i went to medical school i actually in medical school wasn't comfortable with the way they use pharmaceutical therapy in chronic illness. And that's one of the things that pushed me toward obstetrics and gynecology, which was dealing with younger people not chronically ill, bringing life into the world, yeah. which was really wonderful. But practicing in a small town required me to take call at the hospital for labor and delivery and emergency room, like 24 hour call mm -hmm. every second to third day. Oh my gosh. And weekends every second to third what? weekend. Wow. Um, so weekends were like, uh, you started Friday morning and you finish Monday morning. Oh my goodness. And you know, so, and I was one of those people that if somebody's in labor or somebody was in the hospital, I just didn't sleep. Yeah, so yeah. I spent 20 years of my life sleep deprived, yeah. running on probably an average of four to six hours of sleep mm. a night and, you know, and not allowing any more than that on the nights that I wasn't on call because I was catching up with everything else. Yeah. Sure, sure. Yeah. And it caught up with me in a big way. And, but it was, you know, I thought, you know, I, I didn't connect, you know, this sleep deprivation is really wrecking my whole body. And that is causing me to have arthritis and brain symptoms and heart symptoms and all of these other things. So I, I went to my conventional uh, colleagues and it's like, yeah, help me figure this out. And all I could do is drugs. And it was just making me worse. I finally found that I was carrying some of the microbes associated with chronic Lyme. And, you know, and, and now I'm, I'm kind of moved past that. So I, you know, there's so many microbes like the ones that we get from ticks that are just kind of sitting there waiting for you to trash your body. Mm -hmm. And then they jump in and take advantage of the situation. And um, and that's what happened. Mm -hmm. You know, I probably had been carrying microbes since I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And um, it caught up with me in a big way. And 
conventional doctors didn't help me when I was, you know, started thinking, well, this is Lyme disease. I did antibiotics, made me worse instead of better. Mm -hmm. uh, finally, by default, by desperation, ended up doing herbal therapy and gradually got my life back. And I've spent the past 20 years just going, all right, what were these herbs doing? How, why did that make such a remarkable difference? But long story short, I'm 66 now. I've enjoyed really robust health for 15 years. I still take herbal therapy mm -hmm. every yeah. single day mm -hmm. to protect my health. And uh, it's, it's just left me in a very different place than I would have otherwise if I had gone the conventional route. Yeah, interesting. Good story. Interesting. Yeah, and I want to get into that a little bit more, but I also want to talk about your new book, The Cellular Wellness Solution, where you, you talk and you kind of bring this concept of, of health and disease down to the cellular level and even kind of particular cells, how they lose energy. Can you talk about the five categories of underlying stressors that kind of promote illness and the need to remove these obstacles to cure? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I think that's one thing that I came upon early on is asking that question, why am I ill and why were my patients ill? Because, you know, I, I had to stop doing obstetrics. So I started doing just a primary care practice that I was seeing more and more people that were kind of like I was mm -hmm. desperate, hadn't been uh, really helped by the conventional system and wanted to uh, to work with somebody who looked at things differently. And what we do in conventional medicine is ask, how is this person ill? What diagnosis do they have? Because all of our drugs and medical therapies are geared toward reducing symptoms, reducing inflammation, and those are all manifestations of sure, illness. Sure. But people don't get well because if you're just putting a cork on it, um, it's, it's not going to solve the problem. So I started asking that question, was driving it. Mm -hmm. And obviously for me, a driving factor was not sleeping. Um, you know, we all need sleep. That's important. Um, but also started just researching other factors. What are the driving factors of chronic illness and and came to the conclusion that, wow, there's only five different factors mm -hmm. <laughs> that drive all of chronic illness, which is really fascinating. Mm -hmm. And we had different chronic illnesses because those things set up differently in different people. We all have different chemistry. We pick up different things. Um, taking it to the cellular level, you know, it's um, our body is made of cells. Everything that happens inside of us is cellular, mm -hmm. whether that's your heart beating, brain impulses firing, but even like hormone production by your adrenal and thyroid gland, that's all done by cells. Mm -hmm. Absolutely everything is cellular. And when you look at this, you can always simplify something by breaking it down to the smallest functional unit, and that's a cell. Mm -hmm. So all cells have certain requirements, and all cells are influenced by similar stress factors. So those categories, um, nutritional stress, cells have to have the right nutrients to function. Mm -hmm. That varies, like thyroid cells need iodine, where heart cells need fat to keep keep pumping all day long. Um, but you know, if you're eating a whole food diet, that you're gonna give your cells what you need. Mm -hmm. Cells need a clean operating environment. Any machine needs to be free of toxic substances to operate properly, especially a biological machine like our cells. 
So all the petrochemicals and unnatural things that we're exposed to build up in our system. You know, so I was reading the other day about microplastics in water and how much they end, actually end up building up inside our cells. Mm -hmm. They inhibit cellular functions. And that, uh, you know, when you inhibit cellular functions, that's what illness is all about. Sure. Mental stress, chronic mental stress. That's a big category. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what got me, just pushing that stress button continually and not sleeping. What it boils down to is our cells need downtime. Mm -hmm. Now, some cells, like our heart cells, rest in between beats, but most of our cells need that eight hours of sleep mm -hmm. just to, to regenerate and recover from working all day. So we need sleep for cellular recovery. Uh, physical factors, now that can be anything from, you know, uh, heat stress, to pushing too hard, um, mm -hmm. to uh, too much labor. Um, but for most people today, it's being sedentary. Mm -hmm. And the biggest thing, exercise does a lot of things for us, but being physically active, the one most important thing is it moves blood. Yeah. And when we're moving blood, we're flushing toxic substances away from our cells and metabolic waste and delivering uh, a higher uh, quantity of nutrients and oxygen. So blood flow, increasing blood flow is really, really important. And then finally, that micro factor is a really big one. And the fact that we all pick up microbes, it's not just, you know, the things that we get infected with, it's things that are we're picking up throughout our lifetime and that are crossing from our gut and our skin that end up in our tissues, our brain, our heart, everywhere. These low-grade threats are just waiting for us to be stressed, and then they can become active. And, yeah. you know, that's a big driving force for all of our chronic illnesses. Yeah. yeah. Those darn opportunists. <laughs> well, on the back end of what you just said, Dr. Rawls, Michael and I have read your book, and it's fascinating and really in line with everything that yeah. we've been talking about yeah. on the show. But of those stressors that you talk about in the book, the microbial stress was more, more fascinating to us because you link microbes to specific illnesses. And the most surprisingly to us was the various types of cancer. So what are yeah. some of the connections we should be making as it relates to microbes and disease? Yeah, well, microbes are at the center of all of it, but I think everybody, when most people, infectious disease doctors, when they think about microbes, they think about these big bad threats like mm -hmm. Ebola virus right. that yeah. kill people. And what, you know, and, and for acute illnesses, yes, those are a threat. Uh, vaccines, antibiotics, they've saved a lot of lives, but it's these low grade threats. It's like all the tick borne microbes. When people get infected with Lyme disease, they don't die from it, and most people don't get sick. These things enter our body, and if we're healthy, they can become dormant inside our cells, in our, in our, in our brain, in our heart, in our tissues, in our joints. And these things can stay dormant for years. But it's not just tick-borne microbes. Say you've never been bitten by a tick or any insect. We pick up mycoplasma and chlamydia and Epstein-Barr, and all of these things are happening. Plus that, things are pathogens are always trickling across from our, from our gut, from our skin, from our sinuses. They enter our tissues, they invade our cells, and, and they can become dormant. And it's kind of like a time bomb, and it's just sitting there. And, you know, so when I'm looking at this thing, 
I'm finding more and more connections, enough to say that I truly think that all chronic illnesses have a microbe component, whether you're talking about Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or hmm. autoimmune or anything else. But that cancer connection, that one is really fascinating. That one floored so me, yes. It has to do with growth, all right? Okay. So all of your cells have restricted growth pattern. Mm -hmm. In other words, the growth is controlled by the genetic program. You can only fit so many cells in your heart, so many cells in your brain, so many cells in each of the tissue areas of your body. So the only time you make new cells to make replacements is when you lose cells, which is happening all the time. So that is going on, but it's very controlled, very restricted always well-defined. When a cell takes on what's called unrestricted growth and just starts growing, that's what cancer is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting. When you look at bacteria, all bacteria, all microbes have unrestricted growth. Mm -hmm. Right. If yes. you put bacteria in a Petri dish full of food, they will keep growing until all yep. the food is gone. Yeah. They will keep growing at the expense of all life around them. Mm -hmm. As long as food is there and the conditions are right, they keep right on growing. So that's unrestricted growth. And that's their genetic programming is to keep growing. So, you know, you look at that and go, cancer has unrestricted growth. Bacteria have unrestricted growth. And then you start finding studies of bacteria inside cancer cells. They found Borrelia, the microbe that causes Lyme disease, inside breast cancer cells. Mm -hmm. There was a study that they actually found that most tumors have a microbiome of bacteria, different kinds wow. of bacteria living inside the cells. Mm -hmm. But the most fascinating was I ran upon a study looking at a type of algae. So algae has eukaryotic cells, big complex cells like ours, all right, mm -hmm. with a restricted growth pattern. And they took these this algae and they were trying to figure out how does cancer happen? So they exposed the algae to all kinds of carcinogenic chemicals and all this stuff. And they found that it just killed it. Mm. Just cancer just killed it. But then they took the algae and put it in a closet to keep it from getting sunlight, which stressed the cells. Mm. Mm. So the cells were stressed. And then they exposed it to a bacteria that was actually common in this algae, an intracellular bacteria that invaded the cells of the algae. If this algae is healthy, they just go dormant. It doesn't do anything. Mm -hmm. But every single time they exposed the stressed algae cells to the bacteria, it took on a pattern of unrestricted growth. It became cancer wow. every single time. And mm -hmm. they found that the bacteria were actually inserting their gene for unrestricted growth into this, this, the gene of the cells so it would take on unrestricted growth. So the question is, why would they do that? Well, they do that to make more food. Mm, <laughs> it's yes. just, you know, those cells are food. Right. So they, 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 to make more food, it's easy to get. So yeah, it, uh, and this, this group of researchers speculated, well, maybe that's how all cancers form. Wow. So really interesting. It's that interesting idea that maybe some, all 
most yeah. cancers could be actually related Whoa. to these low-grade pathogens. Whoa. Mm. Man, that's fascinating. Right? It's almost yeah, it's it's like the uh it's almost like the bacteria or the microbe is farming our cells. <laughs> Parasites, right? Yeah. Right. It's his. That's yes. wild. That's wild. Yeah. Um Well, yeah, we do get to that point that, you know, what why and people don't ask these questions of why would bacteria and viruses and microbes want to invade our body? Right. And they want to invade our body because we're a food source. Yikes. Basically. Yeah. And, you know, some food is easy to get, like uh, oils on our skin and food stuff inside our gut. But we have barriers to try to keep those bacteria contained. We tolerate them. But um, but all the bacteria want to get in our tissues. Now, our tissues are somewhat protected by our immune system and our cells can defend themselves. But when they became come weak and the bacteria can invade or reactivate if they've been dormant in cells, Basically, what they want to do is start breaking down our tissues to make a food supply to grow more microbes. Mm -hmm. And that really explains a lot about chronic illness. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's um, and it's fascinating, too, because, you know, you describe it in this way in which, you know, we're, we're kind of swimming in this soup of microbes and viruses and, and things of that nature. And there's we an are. ongoing debate between uh, germ theory, really, and, and what's sometimes called terrain theory. Um, and I, I wonder if you have, you know, I, I'm kind of seeing both components of that that you're describing. There's the microbes that are doing these things, but they're only doing them for the most part when the terrain is is ill. Um, and so is that is that an accurate description? Or do you think about terrain theory versus germ theory a little differently? Oh, well, I, I think it all rolls in together. You know, I mean, we have microbes that are constantly trying to enter our body. And the, the microbes we're referring to are what we would call host dependent. So there are things that live in the soil or around us. I mean, there are, there are microbes on around us that don't ha harm us because they're getting their food in some other way and they're not adapting to getting their food from a host. Mm. But basically what all these microbes want is a platform to grow and a place to uh, 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 to transfer to other hosts. Mm -hmm. So we have microbes that are part of us. And, you know, that relationship dates back millions and millions of years. So our normal flora and the things that live in our body, you know, we tolerate them, we give them a little bit of food in one way or another. And they actually help us by secreting substances that keep pathogens in check. But then we have other microbes that are constantly trying to get inside our body um, to uh, to 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 join in the feast, basically. Um, so those are the invasive things. Um, so when we get a cold or a flu or any kind of infection, it's just a microbe trying to uh, gain a platform to uh, get food and grow and then spread to other hosts. Um, so some of them, you know, do well taking up more of a permanent residence inside of us. Others, their only goal, like a, co a cold, yeah, we just want a short-term platform, grow a bit, and then spread to another host, and that's what we do. Yeah. Um, so it's more of a transient affair. So you know, different microbes are built for different purposes. Um, but that's what they all want, is to get a host. And 
if that is a balanced host microbe relationship, then, you know, it, it doesn't kill us. They get what they want. It's, you know, it, when you talk about something that's lethal, um, like Ebola virus, it's really working against the microbes mission. Sure. Um, you know, and, and Ebola virus is bad because humans have never been exposed to it. So when it, you know, enters our system, there's just nothing to stop it. We have no built in defenses. So it kills people pretty rapidly. But the downside of that is the infection burns out pretty mm -hmm. rapidly, too, because you know, people naturally quarantine themselves and try to, you know, distance themselves who are from people who are sick. So it tends to burn itself out. Um, COVID was exceptionally successful because it wasn't that bad. You know, it's like the mortality associated with Ebola is 60 percent. Mm -hmm. COVID, even coming out of the gate in Wuhan, you know, when you do the calculations, which I did in the first several months, um, it looked like it was uh, one and a half to one percent or less. And it's turned out that's correct. It's probably a less than one percent mortality. When you see something that spread that rapidly around the world, it killed a lot of people, but still it's it's not a high-grade pathogen. Mm -hmm. It's a pretty low-grade pathogen because mm -hmm. it doesn't tend to kill that many people comparatively. So it was extremely successful because most people it didn't kill. 50% of people didn't even hardly get symptomatic. Mm -hmm. Only about 20% of people got sick enough to, to, to need medical therapy. So you had lots of people out there that were walking vectors spreading that virus around what more could a what could a microbe like that ask for i mean <laughs> right. it was kind of a perfect situation yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah for sure well and so trying to provide our immune system a little bit of extra arsenal we have antimicrobials that are options and that can be in herbal form that can be in pharmaceutical form so i guess the question is what what in your mind is the major difference between pharmaceuticals or plant-derived antimicrobials in this battle against these horrible microbes? <laughs> but we also know yeah. that a lot of the pharmaceuticals come from plants. So, sure. so how do you differentiate that? What's the difference on a cellular level? You know, I, I think that's people don't realize how much we depend on nature. And mm -hmm. I think even I for a long time, but I think a lot of people think, wow, there's really brilliant scientists sitting in a lab <laughs> trying to build <laughs> molecules that will kill bacteria in a targeted fashion. No, <laughs> we're really dumb. <laughs> we have no capacity to do that. Yeah. All antimicrobials, all antibiotics come from natural sources. They either come from a fungus, a bacteria, or a plant. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what we get from funguses because Funguses hate bacteria and put, you know, they have to defend themselves from bacteria. Every organism has to defend itself from other things, especially micro, other microbes. Mm -hmm. So all of these things are coming from nature. But what we do when we look for an antibiotic is we don't, we're not taking the entire defense system from the organism because we really can't produce that in the lab. What they're looking for is the one chemical that might have the most potency. Mm -hmm. So like with penicillin, it came from a mold. They pulled one chemical, it took them 20 years to, 
figure out how to process that, that actually we could use it as an antibiotic. Mm. So it's one single chemical, and then they take that single chemical, and then they manipulate it in the lab to make it more potent and make it easier to produce. So that's what how it becomes a drug. So it is different than the original chemical in a lot of cases, but it's still, it has to have that origins. So antibiotics are really good for killing fast growing bacteria. Mm -hmm. So when you look at pneumococcal pneumonia, which used to be a really bad killer, what antibiotics do is they kill fast growing bacteria the very best. Mm -hmm. And so pneumococcal bacteria will typically turn over. Uh, doubling rate is about 20 minutes. So they're growing really, really fast. Mm. Our normal flora are still being hit by those antibiotics, but they grow much slower. So they're not hit as hard. So you've got about 10 days before you really start messing up your normal flora. And in most cases, like a, like a wound infection or, a, or pneumococcal pneumonia or all these things that antibiotics are really good for, you can you can do what you need to do within that 10 day limit you start going over that though and you're killing off your normal flora your normal flora is a really important part of your defense system it keeps pathogens in your gut and skin suppressed and so when you really start knocking into that you not only kill your normal flora but those pathogens start becoming antibiotic resistant mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that takes about 10 days. So that 10 day window is, is about all you get. Mm -hmm. um, so there, our antibiotics are really important, but we've overused them and they're very expensive to produce. What a lot of people don't realize is drug companies don't make new antibiotics. They stopped making new antibiotics in the 80s mm -hmm. because it's very expensive and people don't use them chronically, so it takes a long time to get the payback to make mm. a profit. Yeah. So they're not making new antibiotics. So there's a lot of antibiotic resistance, and it's become a big, big problem. So when we look at a plant, when we look at an herb, we're getting the entire defense system of the plant. We're not getting one chemical. We're getting hundreds or even thousands of chemicals. And all organisms have to defend themselves against microbes. So plants have to protect their cells against bacteria, viruses, protozoa, yeast, all of these things. But they do it not with one targeted chemical, but a spectrum of things that affect bacteria, viruses, protozoa, yeast, everything. But it has an intelligence about it. It's selective. So this is something that I recognized in my recovery, but I've actually found a study that I, I put in the book that um, they looked at this. They did a study that proved it. When you take an herb, you suppress pathogens in your system, but you don't disrupt your normal flora. And what that means is you can take them for a long time. So when we talk about these low-grade things that end up in our tissues that can become dormant and then reactivate later, they're growing very slowly. It's like the Lyme microbes, Borrelia, mm -hmm. has a doubling rate of 12 hours, not 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. So antibiotics have a really hard time carrying killing it off, especially if it's buried in tissues. And that's true with all of these low-grade pathogens that can be associated with chronic conditions. So what we're doing with the herbs is constantly suppressing those which 
you know, it just helps our immune system work better. Hmm. But without the penalty of disrupting our normal flora and some of the other toxicities that antibiotics automatically have, and so far we've never documented true antibiotic resistance with herbs. Hmm. So you can keep taking them and you don't pay the penalties that you do with conventional antibiotics. So it's really fascinating. It is fascinating. I, I love the way that you described it as sort of a form of intelligence, because like when you start breaking apart some of these constituents that are in these herbs that we're taking for medicinal properties, you know, we always talk about the difference between the full compound versus an isolated constituent. constituent yeah. um, but like even something that you might be taking for antimicrobial effects, you'll have one constituent you look up in there and it's like prothrombotic. And then you look at a different constituent and then it's antithrombotic. And you're like, what is going on here? But you realize there's so much right. synergy within all those various constituents and how they work together. It's not just, it's not one thing that these herbs are doing. No, it's correct. And, you know, I, I have been studying the science for 20 years and, and um, we know so much more about herbs than say 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and we really have a lot of good understand, uh, science to understand how they work. But those little idiosyncrasies are beyond our capabilities. Right. Yeah. You know, nature is very, very intelligent, and we're really dumb not to take advantage of that. Right, yeah. right. Well, we know that there are some herbs that can target things, like antimicrobial herbs, right? But in your book, you outline the many herbs that can literally be used every single day. So talk about some of those that are safe for daily use and why we should be taking them. Yeah, what are you taking, Dr. Sure. Rawls, yes, every Dr. day? Dr. Rawls? <laughs> well, I've, you know, I take a spectrum of things and have been for a long time. Um, but uh, yeah, I've started using that term everyday herb mm -hmm. um, that includes a familiar category that a lot of people are paying attention to called adaptogens. Mm -hmm. um, adaptogens are herbs that have the effect of protecting us against stress balancing our stress hormones and there are a lot of great adaptogens but what adaptogens don't have are drug-like properties so when you look at the plant the spectrum of things that that we can use from plants it starts with food which has you know really no drug-like properties or or th things that would um, cause any ill effects all the way to the opposite end where some plants are poisons. And very interestingly, most of the drugs come from the plants that we would define as poisons. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's mm -hmm. true. Mm -hmm. Because what, what they're looking for is that single chemical to pull out, to block some chemical or affect something, to have that targeted effect of uh, you know, a reducing a symptom or whatever. Um, so I'm staying way away from that. Um, you know, there are kind of an in-between zone of, of herbs that have some drug-like effects, like St. John's wort that can help with depression or passion flower that has sedating properties. So they're, they're pretty safe to use. But even coming further, dry, plants that are herbs that have no drug-like properties, you know, we're not using them to treat a symptom. We're just using them for their beneficial effects. So all of those herbs are going to have some antimicrobial properties. All of the adaptogens have some antimicrobial properties. All plants do. They have to. So if you're getting the whole herb, you're getting protection. 
Nice. But also they are they are providing all these other th effects of uh, reducing symptoms, promoting wellness. Well, how do they do that? Well, they protect ourselves. So when you look at this category of plants that we call everyday herbs, um, that includes adaptogens, antimicrobial herbs, these things without drug-like properties, they have this broad range of effects that they are protecting cells in our body against those five stress factors that I talked about. So most of these herbs have some anti-diabetic properties. They're either normalizing our insulin levels, or they are protecting ourselves from excessive carbohydrates. It's not a substitute for eating a low-carb diet, but you're getting some extra protection there. They're protecting your cells from free radicals. They're protecting your cells from toxic substances and radiation. Um, they are protecting your cells from some of the effects of when we're just not sleeping enough. They are balancing our stress hormones. They are protecting us from all these different microbes that we're exposed to, not only on an ongoing basis, but things that we've collected through our lifetimes that can be dormant in our tissues and reactivate. So you're getting this full spectrum against all of those factors. So it is just this wonderful cell protection system. And when you combine different herbs, you get this wonderful synergy. So what kind of chemistry an herb has is dependent on the environment that the 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 natural environment of the plant and what kind of stress factors it has to deal with what microbes what free radicals etc so when we take multiple herbs from different places we're getting this blend of things that work together to enhance our protection. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it's really neat. Um, so, yeah, those are those are just kind of some of the basic principles of herbology. I think everybody ought to know. Yeah. yeah, that makes me feel really good. I take a blend of adaptogens every day, so I'm feeling pretty. He just made me feel so much better <laughs> about life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the the adaptogens are wonderful. And and what defines something as an adaptogen over uh, other kinds of herbs that might be beneficial is whether it has an effect on our stress hormones. Mm -hmm. Does it balance our mm -hmm. hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis? Mm -hmm. um, so rhodiola is an herb that I take every day. Our medicinal mushrooms are really nice adaptogens. Reishi, cordyceps, lion's mane, all of these wonderful mushrooms are adaptogenic. Um, but then there's some that don't affect our stress hormones that as much that are really great, like turmeric. Mm -hmm. It's a wonderful anti-inflammatory. So I take that one every day. Um, go to cola, which is an herb from India that we uh, have found is really nice for just protecting brain functions. And there are others out there, Bacopa, Ashwagandha, so many others that, that we can bring in. Um, but they all do have some antimicrobial properties. Mm. Turmeric has antimicrobial properties. And then some of the antimicrobial herbs with a little bit stronger proven antimicrobial properties. Sometimes, you know, we classify an herb as an antimicrobial more just because somebody's done the research to prove it, sure. you know? Yeah. 
And um, but every study I've looked at for every herb, there's somebody out there that's looked at the antimicrobial properties, and I haven't found an herb yet that doesn't have some. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right, that makes right. sense. Um, but Japanese knotweed, andrographis. You know, right. andrographis is a really wonderful herb that has antiviral properties. It's really nice for COVID and respiratory mm -hmm. infections. It was uh, its kind of claim to fame was in the great flu epidemic of 1918 that killed so many people worldwide. There was an area in India where they grew uh, andrographis and everybody was consuming it and they had the lowest death rate of anywhere in the world. Wow. Wow. And then they looked and found, wow, this thing has some wonderful antiviral properties. Yeah. Wow. So it's a really nice one. Hmm. Um, when I was doing research for herbs that might be protective of against COVID. Very interestingly, things that we had used for chronic Lyme, Japanese knotweed, Chinese skullcap, andrographis, garlic, ginger. These were some of the top choices that they found that had some of the better antiviral properties for COVID. So it shows that the herbs have this tremendous range that can protect us from a lot of different things. Yeah, yeah. it's fascinating. And and we're consuming, you know, these herbs and, and plants for that matter in a, a very different way than we have in the past. You know, you think of like the Hadza foraging tribe in Tan Tanzania or versus modern farming. Like how are the plants that we're eating today different than what how they used to exist in the world? Yeah, our, our food. Well, we changed our food. Um, you know, one of the arguments I make for why people should be taking herbs every day is when you look back at our ancient history for hundreds of thousands of years, humans foraged for food. And about two thirds of that was plant matter. It was leaves and stems and wild berries and roots from wild plants. And so they were eating anything they could get to get that might have calories. Um, so they were eating a lot of plant matter. Well, basically they were eating what we would define as herbs mm -hmm. continually. Mm -hmm. We gave that up when we started cultivating foods about 10,000 years ago because we shifted predominantly to grains and beans, which had not been a food that was practical for us to eat because it has to be processed for its poisonous. Um, so we started processing grains. Well, the phytochemistry, the protective chemistry in, in seeds is really low compared to the other mm. parts of the plant. Mm -hmm. So we shifted to a diet that was really low with those protective properties. But not only that, as we started cultivating plants, we started uh, unknowingly breeding those protective properties out of the plants. Mm. So we started cultivating plants plants for one purpose, to produce calories. Mm -hmm. And so we did that in a very controlled, protected environment. We protected them from stress because we wanted plants that produce lots and lots of calories for food. Well, the plants eventually gave up a lot of those protective phytochemicals because they just weren't using them. Mm -hmm. So not to say that our, 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 our vegetables like broccoli and celery and all of these things aren't wonderful for us to eat, but they have just a fraction of the protective phytochemistry that was present in wild versions of those foods. But now when you look at most Americans, they're not eating that. We're right. eating all seeds and meat. Right. It's all grains, beans, and meat. Right. So we're getting nothing. And, and beyond that, 
even when we started cultivating foods 10,000 years ago, I think humans inherently recognized the importance of these things. So we kept that herbal tradition in our culinary uh, and medicinal herbs. Yeah. And that's always been a part of that. Well, about 100 years ago, we started trading all of that for pharmaceuticals. Right. And we've been suffering ever since. That's right. a fascinating timeline. It reminds me, one of my first herbal medicine classes, Dr. Eric Garnell, I remember, he put up on the screen, he was like, this is a carrot. And so on the left-hand side is this big orange plumpy carrot, right? And he's like, this is a food. And then he had another picture was like, this is also a carrot. And it's like this skinny little white thing. He's like, this is a medicine. And the only difference between these two things is the amount of stress, right? So you Uh stress the carrot, it produces all of these medicinal properties, which then turns a food into a medicine or vice versa. Whoa. Oh, your your teacher was way ahead. Profound. Truly. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So no, it's it's right. it's so well taken, and the fact that we kept that tradition was not something I'd ever thought of, as far as you know, understanding that there were medicines from these things, and that they were different from the food we were making. That's fascinating. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Well, you've sold it. Dr. Rawls, everyone out there wants to start taking some herbs, but you founded a supplement company called Vital Plan. Is there a cautionary tale for us as it relates to the quality of herbal supplements and what should we be looking for and and how is Vital Plan different? Yeah, well, you know, I think everybody is getting a bit frustrated with the healthcare system not delivering and being very expensive. So more and more people are turning to alternative therapies. But um, one concern I have is just so much of it, the investment that companies are making is more in marketing and less in quality of products. Mm-hmm. And it's because it, it's hard for people to really define quality and and what's there. Um, that's one thing that I've been really particular about. The, the biggest reason I started a supplement company is because I wanted my patients at the time to have access to the same thing that I had had, you know, and I was ordering these, uh, you know, high grade extracts and, and all these different things. I mean, at different points, I mean, I would have a shoebox full of different things that I was taking Mm -hmm. just to consolidate that and take that knowledge that I learned in my journey and make it easier for the average person to consume this. So one was using the high-grade extracts, and that is an advantage that we have over our historical past is over that 10,000 years that people were using medicinal herbs, it was very intermittent what they could get, Mm -hmm. and it was very seasonal, and it was very knowledge-based. You know, you had to go to someone that actually knew something about them, and it was was, uh, so access wasn't as good through history as what we have now. Mm-hmm. You know, now you can order things, you can go to a health food store um, and get, you know, things that provide that phytochemistry. So instead of having to rely on fresh herbs, which would be really wonderful if we could mm-hmm. all consume, you know, everything we needed in fresh herbs every day, but it's not practical. So you look at how do we preserve that uh, really wonderful chemistry of the herb in a way that we can utilize it. Um, so a lot of people just, you know, a lot of products, you're, 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 you're not getting the concentration of, of chemicals 
that actually do the work. A lot of it is you're just getting a lot of fiber um, mm-hmm. from the plant. Right. Um, so, you know, we're in, in our company, we use the highest uh, concentration of extracts. Typically, they're 10 times more concentrated than uh, standard ingredients that a lot of people are being exposed to, but also the quality and the purity. So, you know, when when we when we're sourcing herbs, you know, we want to know where it came from, but also does it have a certificate of analysis? And this is something that increases the cost of the ingredient. But a certificate of analysis is a third party analysis of that substance to say, yes, it's such and such an herb. You know, it doesn't have heavy metals. It does have, you know, the concentration of these key phytochemicals that you're looking for. Um, But we don't stop there. We take a sample from that lot of ingredient and have it independently tested just to make sure that the certificate of analysis is real Mm -hmm. and that we can be comfortable that we're actually selling what we say we're selling. Um, And then we test it several times during the manufacturing process to make sure the blending is going properly and everything else. Um, not that many companies do that kind of testing because it adds a lot of cost. Mm-hmm. Um, it cuts down on your margins. Um, you know, they would rather hide things behind proprietary blends or um, or or other. So, you know, the tip off is if if you're if you go to a website and there's lots of marketing uh, hype talking about how wonderful <laughs> it is, and everything it's going to do, but you can't find the ingredient. Yeah. yeah. That's a red flag. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if you finally find it and it just says like rhodiola and that's it, or it's a proprietary blend of a bunch of different herbs, but it just gave, gives the names of the herbs, you're getting really low quality stuff that's probably not going to do very much. So I always tell people, look for a label or, you know, the label on the website. And what you want to see is the the scientific name of the herb, the the standardization, like it'll be standardized to 3% of vitexone or some phytochemical and a particular milligram quantity for that herb. And if you find that, you're getting a, a higher quality ingredient. Yeah. Good advice. Yeah, Good advice. Sure. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, Dr. Rawls, Michael and I were excited to to meet you and oh, talk yeah. to you because we read this book and we're going to encourage all of the listeners to check out the Cellular Wellness Solution. Well, as you, you. As you just heard him explain all this amazing, mind-blowing stuff. It's all in that book too, which and much, much more. Yeah. So we're going to encourage well, everyone gonna, to check it out. I'm going to be contacting you about Vital Plan. I'm <laughs> and be... check out Vital Plan. <laughs> and we're, we're so grateful that we got to speak to you today. But before we let you go, we do mm. have one last question that I'm going to kick to Michael Chapman and we call it the fireball. Yeah, Dr. Rawls, we have have a, a kind of a curveball question um, right. and I'm, I've got to tell you this is going to be a hard one I oh just no <laughs> so this poor guy no, Michael no, take no, it easy. no he's got it, he's got it. so <laughs> stranded on a desert island wow. you only have hot water to make a hot infusion infusion what is your one herb that you have or bring to that island or bring with you to to have basically as a medicinal tea for the rest of your days on that island wow um, <laughs> poor guy. <laughs> well, there are a lot of them. Yeah, you know, it's, it's a really good question. Probably the one herb that I would pick 
is one of the ones that I'm starting to call antimicrobial adaptogens because they have adaptogenic properties mm -hmm. because they protect cells, but they also have antimicrobial and very important immune modulating properties. They don't stimulate your immune system, they calm your immune system. Mm -hmm. um, and that herb would be Chinese skullcap. Oh, yeah, yeah. nice. Yeah, I love it. Nice. Love it. Uh, it, it's, uh, it has activity against COVID. It's one of our primary herbs we use in Lyme disease. It's a wonderful immune modulator. It protects your brain, your heart, everything in your body. It's protective of liver cells. Um, now, again, I, you know, I think there's a lot of value in what we call herbal formulas, blending multiple herbs together. And that's been a part of herbology since the very, very beginning. But uh, if you if you had to only give me one word, it would probably <laughs> be Chinese skullcap. And muscle tension, muscle tension, right? That's oh, going to be part of it. Too. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll say, Dr. Rawls, you handled that well, because Michael basically just said, as to someone who's an herbalist, what, who's, your, who's your favorite child? Like, that's basically <laughs> what he just yeah. said. Yeah. <laughs> but again, thank you so much, Dr. Rawls, for your time. Again, the, I want the audience to go check out the Cellular Wellness Solution and go check out Vital Plan. We're going to link to all of that stuff in the show notes. And thank you so much for your time yeah, today, Yeah, it's been sir. a pleasure. Thanks. Oh, thank you. It was fun. I feel like that was a masterclass of herbology. For people who haven't gone to naturopathic school, I think he explained it so well. I followed all of it, and I was fascinated. Yeah, I thought it was an incredible perspective, incredible insight. Um, and I'm just thinking, like, I need to be taking more herbs. Why am I not taking my herbs? I know. Why am I not buying my herbs? You have boxes of them in your office, but you're just not taking them. I know. You I, have I don't them understand. Everywhere. I'm terrible at treating myself. You are. You are. But it makes me look and think about herbs in a whole different way. So I loved that. Greg Monzel, I need some more Chinese skull cap. <laughs> Next time on The Lab Report, we have no idea because we're going to be at Metabolic Health yeah, Summit. Yeah, we'll be on the heels of the Metabolic Health Summit with lots of scoop. Can't wait. Oh, yeah, we're going guest hunting. Mm-hmm. You've been listening to The Lab Report. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast, rate us, and leave us a review. To learn more about Genova Diagnostics, visit our website at gdx.net. There you'll find information on specific testing, educational resources, and how to connect with our show. Call us at 1-800-522-4762 or email us at podcast at gdx.net. What's your favorite Olympic sport? Hmm, gymnastics, I think. Oh, figure skating. Does it winter mm. or summer? Right, up to you. Uh, figure skating. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. It's crazy how they keep adding axles. Right. Yeah, right? You know, it's like, right. Well, we'll see if he makes his sex tuple axle. <laughs> well, what's yours? I know you're a big Olympics fan. I am a big Olympics fan. I like a lot of the traditional ones. You know, swimming is yeah, always sure. exciting, stuff like that. But I have to say, I've been turned on to snowboarding pretty consistently. Okay. I'm now okay. like when it comes on, I'm like, give me some snowboarding and I, give me some snowboarding slope style. Hmm. This has got to be my new favorite thing. It's like they have... At the top, they're doing all these tricks off of different stuff, but then they hit these three massive jumps, um, and it's just really fun to watch. Is I love Boing it. Tomato still out there, or did he re did he resign? He reti retired. He retired with the last Olympics. Yeah, it was a really emotional moment. It's pretty pretty touching. I totally thought you were gonna say surfing because you made me sit and watch all of these surfing in the Olympics, and I was like, why am I watching this, Michael? But then I got into it, and I was like, this is fascinating. It is pretty wild. I totally thought you were gonna say that one, but.
A lot of people get turned off by like the new events, but I yeah. I find them interesting. I haven't checked out Trampoline, but I have a, a a feeling like it's probably pretty awesome. No, it's it's exactly that. You made me watch this. I was like, why am I watching this stupid thing? And then I couldn't stop. Yeah. So I think it's probably going to be the same for the trampoline. I'll say it's weird though because like ping pong has been part of the Olympics for a long time, and uh, I don't think it belongs. What at all? Why are you choosing to draw the line there? I mean, the, I love ping pong. Ping pong, yeah, but I mean, the amount of athleticism, sure there's endurance to be had but like it's a bar game dude it's a bar game it's not a you know it's like darts it's darts oh, i just, darts I just made <laughs> some people upset <laughs> way to go